Turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32. We'll read the whole chapter. It's about 35 verses. Seems like a lot of verses, but it only takes about five minutes to read. And it's a good story. Tabernacle passages that we've been looking at the past few weeks are they're more detail-oriented, but this is very narrative-driven. So Exodus chapter 32. So just the background to this text, Israel had left Egypt, passed through the Red Sea, uh, came to Mount Sinai, <clears throat> the law was given to them, and they agreed to the law, they agreed to keep it, unanimously, unanimously said, we will obey God, we will keep the covenants, and after Moses had read it to them. And then, after they agreed to it, they had a covenant ceremony that solidified it. They had a covenant meal at the end as a symbol of fellowship with God in the covenant. Then they went back down, and then Moses went back up to the mountain. And the last time we saw Moses, or the last time we saw the people of Israel, was all the way back in chapter 24, before all the tabernacle stuff. And it said that Moses went up the mountain, and he was there for 40 days. And then we have this long passage where Moses on the mountain is getting uh, the instructions for the tabernacle. Have you ever watched movies and you follow someone's story that says, meanwhile, back in wherever, that's where we are. So meanwhile, back at the bottom of the hill, here's what's happening. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, this is about two or three weeks after Moses had left, come, make us gods that shall go before us, for as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and he made a molded calf. Then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is the feast of the Lord. Then they rose up early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go, get down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made themselves a molded calf and worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt? with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And all this land I have spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. And Moses turned and went down from the mountain. 
and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hands. The tablets were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other they were written. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved in the tablets. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But he said, Is not the noise of the shout of victory, nor the noise of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. So it was, as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing. So Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf, which they had made, burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder, and he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you should have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people. They are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and this calf came out. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to the shame among their, uh, among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day. For every man is opposed to his son and his brother. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Now, therefore, go, lead the people to the place which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sin. So the Lord plagued the people because of what they said or what they did with the calf which Aaron made. It's quite a story, isn't it? Uh, this, is, this is one of those stories that is a pivotal moment in the story of the Old Testament, like the Red Sea. The Red Sea was, was part of Israel, uh, Israel's history that's repeated later because it's such a significant event. This is also one of those events. In this passage, we have a, a historical account of something. Pivotal move in the story. And what we're going to see is that it was given to us to tell us about something. History becomes prophecy. This happened to them so that you know what will happen. It's not just a fun story about a people that lived a long time ago. It's a prophetic story in the sense that there's patterns here. There are, there are things about the way the world and people are that are repeated. Patrick Henry said, I know no way of judging the future but by the past. It's significant that there's so much history in the Bible. In this passage, 
we're going to see from their example and apply to us. We are made to seek hope and safety in something. But we seek it in created things instead of the creator. Thus setting ourselves against the holiness of God. We now need an interceder who will protect us from the chaos of evil and the wrath of God. So, three things here. The people look for hope. The Lord confronts evil. And Moses tries to protect the people as best he can. The three things we're going to see here. So, look at the first passage. It may be a strange environment, a strange place, but look at the human reactions here. The people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain. What were they expecting? Apparently, they were expecting him to come down sooner than he did. They had expectations. They had hopes. They were depending on Moses for leadership, and they expected him to be there for them. And then he wasn't. Now they say to themselves, we can't depend on Moses. Now we've got to find something else. Their hope was deferred. They were disappointed. They were discouraged. They looked for something in the face of uncertainty, in the face of stress, in the face of loss. They needed purpose. They needed someone to go before them to guide them. They needed some reason to live. Does that sound familiar? See, this may be a very old story, but it's a very current feeling. The uncertainty of this world, the need for purpose, what are we moving towards? We like to sum it up with words like hope, guidance, the reason for a living, resiliency, ability to cope. All of these things are putting weight on something. So the people of Israel had that weight on Moses, and they switched it. It's only a few weeks after they agreed to follow God. But what they want? They said, Moses has delayed. We can't see Moses. We want something we can see. We want something that we can look at with our eyes, we can touch with our hands, and we can say, that's what we can trust. Moses was gone. They couldn't see God. So they said, give us something we can see, some visible object. See, monotheism is an exercise, the worship of one God is an exercise of putting all your eggs into one basket. But polytheism... There's always something else to turn to. There's always another option. And we say, we're not polytheists. That's pagan religion. That's ancient world. No, polytheism means you put your trust in more than one thing. You depend on more than one thing. God had called them to depend on him. They said that's not enough. They didn't, in their minds, they didn't reject God. Now, you remember, the mountain is covered, in the text that says the mountain is covered in smoke. It wasn't like they didn't know where God was, but they couldn't see it. So what they do? They said, make us a cat, make us something we can see. And Aaron says, I need something to make it with. Give me your gold. Now here's the thing. Where'd they get that gold from? They got it from the Egyptians. It says in the text that when, the Egypt, when they left, they, they, they spoiled the Egyptians. It was sort of a payment for slavery. It was a spoil of the war. The Egyptians were paying them to leave. Do you know what that was for? Remember back in Exodus 25? God says, let them make freewill offerings for the tabernacle of gold and silver. You see, God had given them this to make the tabernacle. 
They take God's good gifts, freely given, and they make something that opposes God. God gave them blessings, and they turn and worship the blessings instead of God. God has given us food. He's given us families. He's given us jobs. He's given us education. And we say, wow, these are so good. These are better than God. Let's use them for our own ends. But they didn't reject God. See, they went to Aaron the priest, and Aaron made them a calf, and he said, O Israel, this is your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh, the Lord. Wait, I thought it was a feast to this golden calf. You see what Aaron's doing? He said, you can have it both ways. You don't have to choose. You can worship the Lord and this golden calf. You can be religious and do what you want. For us, you can be a Christian and be obsessed with work. You can be a Christian and be greedy. You don't have to choose. So it's this religious veneer that we put over idols. We put over selfishness. We put over things that we should be using, not worshiping. Why? Because it gives you immediate gratification. They proclaimed a feast. They rose up early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and they sat down to eat, drink, and play. You see, before they were waiting, but now they get to celebrate. You see, the, the God that they worship gave them immediate gratification, and that's what made it so tempting. You see, the Bible tells us that we are to wait and be patient and endure and be long-suffering and look forward to something that's not here. But our idols say, you can get it right now. One click of the button, and you can get what you want. Same-day shipping. You don't think shopping is a god? Why do you feel so good when you buy something? And then why do you feel so bad a few days later? Because the god demands more. But it gives it to you right away. Internet pornography is so fatal because it's so easy to get. Shopping is so dangerous because it's so easy to get. Yeah. Relationships are so dangerous because they can give you immediate gratification. Yeah. And it all sounds great. Why not do it? Isn't that what we tell ourselves? I don't see why I wouldn't do it. It always makes me feel good. Every time. And that's what the uh, uh, children of Israel said. But the text shows us that they've corrupted themselves. It felt good, but they're corrupting themselves. We understand that with drug use, gives you the high but destroys your life. That's just an extreme form of all sin. Immediate gratification, shortly after suffering. Now, we don't worship golden calves, do we? So it's not really about us. The point wasn't the piece of gold that they worshiped. The point was that they left God for something else. There's no substitute that's okay. So I may ask you, what are your gods? Calvin said that man's nature is a perpetual factory of idols. You're always finding something that you can see to trust in. Keller says, what thing, if you lost it, would almost take your will to live? Would almost drain your life, if you lost it, of significance and purpose? What is that thing for you that you can't imagine living without? 
that gives you purpose, that's your God. That's your idol. That's your hope for salvation. You see, God was their hope for salvation, but then they said, no, the cat, that will save us. That will bring us up. That will lead us. That will go before us. That will get us out of the bed in the morning and put energy into our life. What is that for you? Is it your kids? Is it your job? Is it your entertainment? Keller gives an example here. He says, if you seek power, success, winning, influence, work, your greatest fear is humiliation. And your problem emotion is anger. Do you get angry often? You worship power. You fear being humiliated. Do you seek approval? Relationships, affirmation, success at work, public approval. Your greatest fear is rejection. And your problem emotion is cowardice. You're afraid to say what you believe because you'll be excluded. I don't know about you, but I struggle with this. If I say that, people won't like me. As I bow before the God of approval, make me feel good. Maybe it's comfort, privacy, lack of stress, freedom, pleasure. Your greatest fear is stress and demands. And your problem emotion is boredom. You got to have something. You got to have multiple social media apps so you can switch between them. So you can always have a notification coming up. You've always got to have something entertaining you. You can't have people putting pressure on you to do stuff. You've got to have freedom. You worship comfort. You seek control, self-discipline, certainty, standards. Your greatest fear is uncertainty. No, nothing's left. We've got to plan it out. We've got to make sure we know what's going to happen. Your problem emotion is worry. Anxiety. You see how you worship things? Good things, like family and work. And yet they cripple you with these emotions, with these demands. People around you suffer because of it. Here's three tests you can give yourself. And there's more, but here's three things. What do you think about when you don't have to think about anything? When you're just waiting for something, you daydream. What is that thing you always go back to? Uh, a guy named Temple said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. When there's no demands on you, and you get to do whatever you want, you get to think about whatever you want, what do you think about? That's your God. That's what you, like, man, just imagine if I was this, or if I had that, just thinking about it makes me happy. That's a test. What do you do with your money? Where your heart is, there your treasure be also. Your money is a product of your life. So where you put your money is where you put your life. You work hard for that money. You're investing your money into something you care about. So you can test who your gods are but by where you spend your money. What about your strong emotions? What triggers those emotions? That burst of anger, that depression, that boredom. What is it that triggers those things? That's an indicator of what controls your life, of what you put hope in. We all have gods, 
They may not be as obvious as a golden calf, but they control our life just as much. And they'll destroy us just as much. You see, you are putting your hope into something that is guaranteed to let you down. Now, it may take a decade or 30, but it will let you down. And the gods that last longer crush you more. You see, your family may be with you till the end, but that just builds a dependence on something that will let you go. Your job will not last. Your money will not last. Your health will not last. Your God is setting you up to be destroyed. And in the meantime, it will destroy other people around you. If your wife or your spouse or your boyfriend, girlfriend is your God, you will crush them. Because you will demand from them what you want from God. You will say to them, save me. I can't live without you. No human can bear that. You'll demand from your work meaning in life. It's just supposed to give you some money. Let's look at God's reaction to this. Because our reaction is never appropriate. It's always filtered through our desires. Just like the, the Israelites here, they didn't come to their senses. We don't come to our senses. We always have to be confronted. The Lord said to Moses, go get down. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. He confronts evil. Here's his response and his solution. His response is a model of holiness, of goodness. See, sometimes we look at the Old Testament and think, man, God is so harsh and demanding here. What's your reaction to sin? You see, we all have the appropriate reaction to some evil. We find out a child has been molested. What's our reaction? Anger, wrath, destruction. We find that people have been oppressed. We want to speak up. We want to fight evil. See, no one has a problem with Nazis being killed. Do we? But the minute it becomes us, suddenly God is too just. He's too strict. What God is saying is, I don't have degrees of holiness. I have one standard. Perfection. Which means he's always just. He always gives people what they deserve. And so he says here, the people of Israel have turned against me, have corrupted me, have become evil. He says, Moses, move out of the way. Move over. I'm going to go kill them. I'm going to fix the problem of evil. You realize there's a problem of evil in the world, and we've got an answer for it? If God is good, then why does evil exist? Well, here's God's answer. You want to get rid of evil? Okay, here's how it happens. God destroys people. Evil doesn't come from nature. Evil comes from people. That's who hurts you. That's who you hurt. To remove evil is to remove us. And so God says, I'll remove evil by removing the people. If we don't like this, it's because we don't see things from God's point of view. Imagine you have guests over at your house. They proceed to destroy your house. What's your reaction? You see, we want God to be like, you guys stay here now. I'm just going to move out. You destroyed it. Now you get to live here because I don't want to, you know, it's fine. No, of course not. You see, God created this world. He saved his people. And the minute they rebel against him, we feel like, well, he should just move on. Yet we wouldn't do that. So God's holiness says, this is mine that I bought. 
I'm going to deal with it. Deuteronomy chapter 32 says, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. Is he not your father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? But you sacrifice to demons. Let's talk about this passage right here. It's Moses singing about it. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals, that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. But the Lord will judge. He says, I am God. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Nor is there any who, de- who can deliver from my hand. For I raise my hand to heaven and I say, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold of judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and repay those who hate me. Perfect justice. Are you worshiping a false god? The true God will demand justice from you. In perfect holiness. You see in the, in the call to worship, it said worship him in the beauty of holiness. That sounds good, doesn't it? Well, here's what it looks like when there is no holiness. It means destruction. So Moses realizes that this is a problem. The people have sinned. They've, they've committed adultery on their honeymoon. Weeks after making a covenant with God, they've already cheated on him. And Moses says, this is bad. I'm going to try to stand in between God and them, though they deserve it. So Moses intercedes. He doesn't talk about the people. He has nothing to say about the people. In verses 11, he says, Then Moses pleaded with the Lord God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out? Verse 12. Why should the Egyptians speak? And say, he brought them out to harm them. Verse 13, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. What is Moses doing? When you pray, this should be a model. You don't pray, Lord, I'm not that bad. I've done good things. You pray like Moses and say, look how great you will look. See, Moses said, the people have nothing good. They're, they're currently worshiping a false god. But you're great. And if you spare them, you'll look even better. Moses was concerned about God's glory. But then he goes down the hill. Aren't you much more lenient on things you never, you don't see? But then when you see them? So Moses, Moses turned and went down from the mountain. So God relented. He didn't kill them right there. With the two tablets of the Testament, the Ten Commandments, written by the hand of God. The point of that passage there, the most valuable thing that Moses and Israel could have in their possession. Two stones written with God's own hand. He gets to the bottom of the mountain. What does he see? Chaos. Remember the pleasure they were getting? It turns into chaos. And so he takes these precious stones, and before all the people, he does to them what they had already done. He broke them. He smashed them before him, symbolizing their behavior. They said, we'll keep the covenant, and immediately they broke it. He says, I'm going to teach you a a symbolic lesson. I'll break the the Ten Commandments, break the covenant stones, and then I'll take the calf and do to it what you should have done. He crushes it. He burns it. He makes them drink it. He destroys it. Then he confronts the leadership. Remember Aaron? Aaron's like, I don't know what happened. Moses says, what did you do this for? He's like, there's two things that we all do. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was them. They made me do it. 
Remember Adam in the garden? Priest over the garden? God comes to Adam the priest and says, what happened? He said, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. Aaron the priest does the same thing. It wasn't me. You know the people. You know the people I work with. Of course I blew up and, and yelled at them. You know how hard it is to live in America. Of course I didn't handle my finances correctly. You know how stressful my life is. You know, God, it's not my fault. It's their fault. But then when he's confronted, he said, I said, whoever has any gold, let him break it off. And they gave it to me, and I cast it into the fire, and out came this calf. You remember what actually happened? He actually engraved it. He worked it. It was no accident. But don't we do that? We sort of have this revisionist history that always turns out that we're never as bad as everybody else. There's there's famous gangsters from the 20s. When they died, they said, I was only trying to do what I thought was right. No one wants to be the bad guy. And so what do we do? We retell the story. And when we retell the story, it's always, I was just, I just showed up to work and this just happened. I didn't mean to do it. It's not even my fault. In fact, I didn't even do it. We protect ourselves. We are afraid because we know we're wrong and we have to protect ourselves. But look at the results. Now when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies. Now this is a difficult passage because a bunch of people are about to get killed. But look what it says, unrestrained. Guess who's watching the nation of Israel? The Amalekites, the Canaanites, they've already attacked them once. Now there's a chaos in the camp. And if you ever want to attack a group of people, this is the perfect opportunity. You see, the party that everyone was enjoying had turned into mass chaos. And now Moses is like, what do we do? See, that sin that you're worshiping, that job that you're worshiping, will not be contained. It will not be contained. This is a history lesson that will be the history of your life. It will break out unrestrained. There will be chaos in your life. Maybe you're dealing with it right now. You cannot contain sin. And so what do you do with it? Here's what Moses did. Moses stood at the entrance of the camp and he said, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. Whoever will repent, leave this false God and come to the Lord's side, come over here. And the entire tribe of Levi did it, the priestly tribe. And you know what they became? What's called a priest judge. Now, a priest judge is what Adam was supposed to be. God put Adam in the garden. He said, keep the garden. That word keep also means guard. Guard the garden. Destroy evil. What did Adam do? He said, oh, that's okay. That snake can come in. That's fine. So what we have here is a group of priest judges. And what do priest judges do? They do what the cherubim did. Guard, protect, purify. Now there's a riot in the camp. And so Moses says, take your sword. Go to one end of the camp and come back and kill everybody you see. Doesn't that sound harsh? That's because we want everyone to be happy, and we're afraid that this could apply to us. But the camp was in chaos. Their enemies were watching. And Moses says, we've got to fix this. And so the priest judges were ordained that day. He said, you have been sanctified. The Lord, Moses returned and says, 
uh, go up, uh, verse 29, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord. You now have a job to do. You know why we practice church discipline? Because we are a nation of priest judges. We are given the job, the task, as a church to protect it from evil. Now, we don't do it with the sword. That was the Old Testament. There are no enemies waiting to invade our church. That's not how it is anymore. We protect its morality. We protect it. You know churches get called hypocrites all the time? Because the priest judges within the church are letting it happen. God is calling us as a church to protect the purity by calling out sin among the members. That's what the covenant you signed was about. It was saying, I will protect God's holiness. I will protect the church from its own people. And one day, God himself, Christ, will return and do the same thing. You see, there's a theme throughout the whole Bible. God is jealous of his holiness. This chapter ends on a cliffhanger. In fact, the whole book of Exodus ends on a cliffhanger. Moses says, he returns and he says, I, you have committed a great sin. It's worse than I thought. Now that I've seen it, it's worse than I thought. I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sins. See, Moses is going to try to protect the people. He's going to try to fix the problem. So he goes up to God and he says, yet now they've sinned greatly. If you will forgive their sin, pretend like it never happened. But if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Moses offers himself a substitute for the people. He says, kill me, let them live. Write me out of your book, but let them live. And you know what God says? No. He says, whoever has sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book. Moses offered himself a substitution. And God says, you're not good enough. You need to die too. And then God says, lead them out. Now ask yourself, where are you in the story? Are you worshiping an idol? Enjoying the pleasures of it? Are you being confronted with sin and you're deflecting? Are you trying to be Moses and be good enough to be accepted? You're not like those other people. You do the right thing. You are righteous. And God says, I don't even want that. But what's the answer? You see, if you're reading this as, a, as, as an Old Testament uh, believer, you have to ask yourself, what about the sin? God says, now therefore go, my whole my angel shall go before you. But, but wait, what about the sin? God is just, he just pretend like it never happens? He says, that's fine. You really messed up, but we're just going to move forward. That's not justice. What will become of sin? What will become of your sin? The answer is not in this book. You don't know the answer throughout the whole Old Testament. You don't find the answer to all the problems until you find someone better than Moses. Now, don't discount Moses. Look how great Moses is in this passage. Standing before God, pleading for his people, offering himself up. Moses is the greatest character in the Old Testament, but not good enough. As Christians, 
We know and we see the truth here that unless someone better than Moses shows up, we deal with sin on our own and God will consume us. Hebrews chapter 3. This is the conclusion of the book, New Testament. For this one, Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who builds all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all God's house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which we spoken afterwards. But Christ was a faithful as a son over his own house. You see, the story ends with Moses being rejected as not good enough. But it's picked up again in Christ, better than Moses. And what does the better true Moses do? For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as is it appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment... So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. Why didn't God kill all of these people right there? Because he knew Jesus would die for them. Why hasn't God killed you for your idol worship? It's only because of Jesus. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust. That he might bring us to God. You see, if you only follow this religion, if you try to make it to heaven, you'll end up where Moses is. At the mountain, God's saying, you'll pay for your own sins. But if you follow Christ, he pays for your sins. The substitution of Christ for us, that's the only answer for sin. There's nothing else available. Revelation 21 the very end of the Bible. It says, The great city, the holy Jerusalem, descended out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Perfection, beauty. None of this bad stuff. But the next verse says, But there shall by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But that's us. We lie. We're corrupt. We can't go in. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Remember what Moses said? He said, blot me out of the book. And God says, no. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. So Jesus said, give me that book. I'll die for it. Now it's the Lamb's book of life. And God says, it's a lamb's book. And whoever the lamb puts in that book gets into heaven, Amen. no matter what they do. Amen. The answer to this golden calf incident is to turn to Christ and say, I don't deserve anything. Please save me. Please put me in your book. And Christ says, if you will repent and come to me, I'll do it. Despite all your idols. Despite your inward focused self. Repent. Just say, I can't trust anything except for Christ. And Christ writes your name in his book. And if your name's in Christ's book, you'll be with him. But if your name's not in his book, you'll be with everyone else who got what they deserve. 
We sing the hymn, what can wash away my sin? That's what Moses was asking. What can wash away the people's sin? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray.